Good morning. All right. If you are new, this is your first time here. I just want to briefly introduce myself. My name is Obed, and along with Dan and Jeremy um, and so many other awesome leaders, we um, lead um, this church. And so, um, welcome. Thanks for coming. As always, if you have questions, Um, and comments, you can visit Mike and the team at our Connect table, um, and they'll be able to fill you in on whatever you need. Um, But as a church, we've been in a series based on the book of Galatians, and this morning we will continue with that. I was just reminded by Kennedy to remind you guys that there is no youth group today. This evening, there's no youth group this evening, but it will be next Sunday. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, there he is. Great job, mate. Ah, how much do we pay ya? <laughs> Volunteers. I was gonna say something funny, but whatever. <laughs> Um, Okay, that's it. Um, The next announcement I have is that um, January 28th will be our family meeting. Family meeting is for anyone who considers King's Cross Church to be their home church. And so if King's Cross Church, you consider it to be your home church, we are having a family meeting. And during that meeting, January 28th, We're going to communicate to you some exciting things coming up this year for King's Cross Church. Um, We're also going to introduce you to our board of trustees who have been incredibly helpful um, in helping us with the administrative side of church. Um, And also we're going to give you a financial update and it's your opportunity to ask whatever question you want during that meeting. And so January 28th, our family meeting following our Sunday service is going to be downstairs and we'll probably provide lunch for you guys. And I say that so you come or something like that. Um, and so that's the plan. But we are here to study Galatians. And so if you have your Bibles, if you don't have a copy, if you look in front of you, there might be a copy of the Bible um, that you can grab. And by the way, you can have it if you don't have a Bible. Take it home, all right? Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 to 31, that's where we're at. And as always, as is our desire to honor God's word, one of the ways we do it is by standing. And so if you could do that, that would be great. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 to 31 reads, Paul is writing to the Galatians. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, 
and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who, do not, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted in him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the living God. And the church shall say, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And so God, may you bring clarity this morning. There's a lot in here. And that needs to be considered. But God, the clarity we're desiring is for the gospel. Of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ to be um, what we see and savor and experience through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so last fall, we began this series on the book of Galatians and... Um, near the end of last year, we kind of um, transitioned from Galatians to our Advent series, and we looked at Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 to 20. Um, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, who's the author of Galatians, first reminds um, the Christian community in Galatia of their life before knowing God. Look at Galatians 4 verse 8 reads, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Before um, the Christians in Galatia entered into a relationship with God, um, Paul says that they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And so after accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, um, they came to know God and turned away from these false gods. However, Paul in this part of the letter expresses his disappointment with the Galatians because they have turned back to their old ways. They are sneaking back to old idols and replacing Jesus with rules and rituals. Look at verse um, 9 of chapter 4. Paul says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And so Paul is troubled that his labor for the Galatian church might have been in vain. He is perplexed and disappointed that they have turned back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, which is basically a lifestyle based on following laws and customs. Paul then reminds them, the Galatians, 
of the love and care they showed him while he was with them. However, the warmth and respect they had for him didn't last as they now view him as an enemy for telling them the truth. Look at verse um, 16. Have I then become your enemy, Paul says, by telling you the truth? Sometimes I feel like an enemy for telling my kids the truth. I love them a lot, but they need a lot of instruction. Um, And as a result of that, there are times when they view me as the bad guy. Daddy, you don't love me. But I'm not. I love you and I need to tell you the truth. And so in a similar way, the Galatians kind of are viewing Paul as an enemy for telling them the truth. Paul concludes this section with a personal and emotional appeal and expresses his desire to be with them. Look at Galatians chapter 4, 19 and 20. He says, My little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until um, Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. That was a quick preview of what we covered last time in our study of Galatians. Today, we're going to be looking closely at the last 10 verses of Galatians chapter 4, specifically verses 21 to 31. And you will notice this, that within this passage, Paul will continue to do what? To address the same issue. And that issue he'll be addressing and has been addressing for a long time in this letter is the fact that he is perplexed and disappointed that the Galatians have been adding to the finished work of Jesus Christ. They've been seeking to gain God's love and acceptance through obeying and following the law. But he'll do it different. He'll take a more theological and allegorical approach. And as he does... What's going to happen is we're going to be exposed to several truths this morning. And the first is, if you're taking notes, we'll be reminded that self-reliance is a problem. Self-reliance is a problem. Look at verse 21 of chapter 4. Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Here, Paul begins with a rhetorical question. And with this rhetorical question, Paul is addressing the Galatian Christians who desire to be what? Under the law. You can speak back to me, you know. It's fine. Under the law. To be under the law is to believe that the only way to earn and maintain God's favor, love and acceptance is by obeying rules. John Stott, who's a British minister, says this, There are many such today. 
They are people whose religion is legalistic, who imagine that the way to God is by observance of certain rules. And for those under the law, the Apostle Paul poses a rhetorical question. And the rhetorical question isn't meant to trip them up, but is to get them thinking about the deeper implications of their beliefs and actions. In essence, he's saying, you're convinced that perfect obedience to the law is what makes you right before God. But have you really stopped to think and see how impossible it is to perfectly obey the law? Paul doesn't only use a rhetorical question to help them see the futility of the law um, for salvation, but he also transitions to... uh, monumental story in the Old Testament to illustrate all of this. And it's the story from the life of Abraham. Look at Galatians chapter 4 verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. <laughs> it's getting interesting. All right. In, in the book of Genesis, we're introduced to a couple named Abraham and Sarah. I'm sure most of you know who they are, but in case you're new to Christianity and you don't have a clue who they are, just so you know, Abraham is kind of a special guy He was chosen by God, and he is considered the father of the Jewish faith, yeah? And so one day, God meets with Abraham, and God promises him and his wife Sarah that they will have a son, and as a result of that, their descendants will be as numerous as the stars. This promise sounds exciting and awesome, Until we find out that Sarah is kind of old and unable to have children. And as they grow older and are still unable to have children, they lose patience, doubt God's promise, and take matters into their own hands. They're very much like, God, I get it. You made a promise to give us children, but I'm old, time is passing by, and we're going to fix this issue ourselves. And so Sarah comes up with a solution, a way for them to have a child. And this is detailed in Galatians chapter 16, verse 2. Let's read it together. And Sarai said to Abraham, by the way, Sarai, Abraham, same as Abraham, Sarah, their names changed, and I can't get into the reasons why, but basically. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. And so what's happening here? Sarah's like, look, 
we can't have children, so what you need to do is have a child with my Egyptian slave who's called Hagar. Side note, this all sounds weird and shady for us, right? And immoral, like this whole situation. But I found out, interestingly enough, that her suggestion to have a child through Hagar was a common practice at the time for childless couples. Ooh. And so Abraham agrees with Sarah's idea, and this results in the birth of a son named Ishmael. This decision and outcome doesn't change God's mind about his promise. God follows through on his promise to give Abraham and Sarah a biological child. Look at Genesis 21, verse 1 to 3. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And so Abraham ends up having two sons, Ishmael, born to Hagar, a slave, and Isaac, born to Sarah, his wife. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, Paul says, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. With these words, the apostle Paul explains how the birth of Ishmael and Isaac came about. First, Ishmael, the son of Hagar, Abraham's slave, was born according to what? The flesh. This phrase implies that Ishmael's birth was a result of human planning and effort. In contrast, Isaac, the son of Sarah, Abraham's wife, was born through promise. This basically means that Isaac's birth was a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. And so in their eagerness to see God's promise fulfilled, Abraham and Sarah acted ahead of God's timing, leading to the birth of Ishmael, a son not of promise, but by their own efforts. Think about this. How often do we, like Abraham and Sarah, become impatient with God's timing? How often do we try to bring about God's promises in our way, in our own way, because we struggle to trust his plan? So my question to you is then, what are some of the things you are convinced God has promised you? 
What are some things you feel God wants to do in your life? As we ponder the things God has promised us, let's remember that our God is a God of promises, all right? His timing and his ways are perfect. While it's human to want to speed things up or take shortcuts, the story of Abraham, Sarah, Ishmael, and Isaac teaches us that the value of waiting on the Lord and trusting in his divine plan is one of the most valuable things we can embrace. And so, my brothers and sisters, let's do this. Let's seek to live lives that are marked by our, that are not marked by our impatient actions, but by trust in God's perfect timing. Let us be a people who rely not on the flesh, our human understanding and efforts, but on the unwavering faithfulness of our God. And so what has God promised you? And as you wait for God to fulfill his promises to you, may you wait and trust God and resist the temptation to try and bring about God's purposes and will in your life through your own efforts. That's one way of interpreting and applying the story of Abraham. But there is another way to look at it. And the Apostle Paul offers another interpretation of this story. Look at Galatians chapter 4 verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, Paul says, He goes on to say, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Here, Paul interprets the story allegorically. He begins by stating that Sarah and Hagar represent what? Two two covenants. Thank you. He then explains that Hagar represents the old covenant, which is the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai, and then adds that Hagar gives birth to children for slavery. In other words, by equating Hagar with Mount Sinai, Paul is revealing that those who are under the law are like the children of Hagar. They're living in spiritual slavery. Look at verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Here, Paul further explains the allegory by connecting Hagar with the city of Jerusalem. In essence, Jerusalem is both a real city 
with religious importance and a symbol of the old covenant and its limitations in bringing true spiritual freedom. And so what Paul is doing is that he is using Hagar, Mount Sinai, and Jerusalem to highlight the problem, the problem with self-reliance. Self-reliance in this context refers to the reliance on one's own efforts, abilities, or personal righteousness to achieve justification or right standing with God. And self-reliance is a problem because if you try to gain salvation through your own efforts, you will be bound by rules and regulations instead of trusting in grace. Think about this. Think about this this way. If you go to church, sing songs, and study God's Word, thinking this is how you're going to work to earn God's favor then you are no different from the over one billion, let's say, over one billion Hindus in the world today who are bowing to their gods. If your Christianity is a checkbox in order to make you feel good about yourself before God, in order to save your skin or the day of judgment, then your Christianity is no different from every other religion in the world, and ultimately it will condemn you. Paul is uncovering a scheme of the devil in the first century that has continued to our 21st century. It is subtly and dangerously deceiving. And what is deceiving about legalism and religiosity is that most of us think we have it covered. The reason why Paul is over and over and over again reminding us that salvation and acceptance before God isn't based on what we can do, but, what on, what, but on what Jesus has done, is because we forget. We forget, and we get to the place where we think we need to earn or sustain our salvation before God. And so what if Satan's strategy to condemn your soul involves not tempting you to do all the wrong things, but instead leading you to do all the right things with the wrong intention? What if Satan actually wants you to come to church be involved in community group, teach and lead your home in an upright way? And what if he's in favor of you doing all of those things just so 
long as you think that by, be, by doing those things, you're working your way to God. And so who or what are you relying on for your justification before God? For real. Like, think about this. And so from this passage, we first learned that self-righteousness is a problem. Next, we're going to learn that the joy um, that there is about the joy of trusting Jesus. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 26. It says, uh, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Um, while the earlier verses depict Jerusalem as a symbol of Old Covenant and uh, all of that, this verse introduces a different Jerusalem. First, Jerusalem is described as Jerusalem above. This refers to a heavenly or spiritual Jerusalem. This concept is rooted in Jewish tradition, which viewed Jerusalem not just as a physical city, but also a symbol of God's presence and promise. Second, Jerusalem above is described as free. Unlike the earthly Jerusalem bound by the law, this spiritual Jerusalem embodies freedom. From the law's constraints. Third, Paul describes the Jerusalem above as a mother. Just as a mother gives life and substance, sustenance to her children, this, this heavenly Jerusalem gives spiritual life and sustenance to believers. It's a source of spiritual nourishment and growth underlying the nurturing aspect of our relationship with God. In summary... The Jerusalem above symbolizes the spiritual reality of the new covenant. It represents freedom from the law and the relationship with God. And so in the verses that follow, Paul expands on the concept of Jerusalem above by quoting a passage from Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 27. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of, um, of the one who has a husband. This is basically a quote from Isaiah 54 in its original context. It was a prophetic word for the Jewish exiles in Babylon. During this time, the people of Israel felt abandoned like a wife forsaken. However, during exile, God provided them with a message of hope through the prophet Isaiah. And so through Isaiah, God promised that the season of desolation would end and the nation would once again flourish. A barren woman who rejoices and bears many children is used to symbolize God's promise to restore and bless this people. Look at chapter 4, verse 28. 
Paul says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. And then he kind of says the same thing in um, verse 31. Look at verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Here, Paul reminds the Galatians that as Christians, they are like Isaac, children born due to God's promise, not because of human effort or adherence to the law. (laughs) This section of Galatians we just looked at communicates something really important, and that is the joy of trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. And he communicates this through the imagery of the heavenly Jerusalem and the truth that believers are children of promise. And so, if you are here and you have dedicated your life to following Jesus Here's one of the most truest things about you and one of the most joyous realities you live in. You are a recipient of God's amazing grace and and you are a recipient of God's amazing grace not because of what you have done but because of what Jesus has done. Being identified as children of promise, like Isaac, you get to experience the joy of knowing that you are chosen, Christian. You are loved and valued by the God of the universe. And so let me ask you a question. Do you experience joy when you are reminded that you are fully and completely loved by God because of faith in Jesus Christ? Do you experience joy when you hear about the gospel and what God has done for you, or does it just go through one ear and out the other, or do you hear the gospel and go, oh, great. Amazing grace. Think about this for a moment. This isn't just about knowing God and his love intellectually. It's about feeling it deeply in your heart and soul. Consider the times when you might struggle to feel this joy And the question I want to ask is, what holds you back 
What holds you back from experiencing true joy because of what God has done for you in Christ? Is it guilt? Is it past mistakes or feelings of unworthiness? Psalm 51 is one of my favorite psalms. If you've never read it, note it down, go and read it. It's one of my favorite psalms because I've read it over and over again. Because I need to read it over and over again. And in verse 12 of Psalm 51, it says, "Um, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This prayer was penned by King David, and it captures a profound longing for the joy that comes from God's salvation. It's a cry for the restoration of the deep abiding joy that we are meant to experience as followers of Jesus Christ. Think about how this verse applies to your own life. Are there areas where you need to pray for the restoration of joy? This prayer from Psalm 51 verse 12 is a powerful template for us. It's a prayer for God to renew the joy that comes from our salvation. A joy not based on our circumstances or achievements, but rooted in the love and grace of God. And so, King's Cross Church, let's be a church community that embraces this truth. Let's savor it. And let's pray for God to continually restore and uphold this joy in our lives. If you want something to pray this week, and pray it over and over again. Ask God and pray that He restores the joy of your salvation. And so, from this passage so far, we've seen that self reliance is a problem. We've learned about the joy of trusting Jesus. And lastly, we should expect persecution. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 29. Paul says, But just as the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. In this verse, Paul references Genesis chapter 21, verse 9, where Ishmael mocks Isaac during a feast. Paul uses this incident to communicate that the children of the slave, that is those seeking salvation through obedience to the law, will always persecute the children of the free woman, those enjoying salvation by grace alone in Christ alone, and this is so true. And why is this so true? This is why. The gospel is more threatening to religious people than to non-religious people. The gospel is more threatening to religious people than non-religious people. 
For many religious people, their faith is built on a foundation of rules and rituals for achieving God's favor. The gospel, with its emphasis on grace and forgiveness, can feel to them like a threat. It almost kind of shakes the very ground upon which their sense of security and standing with God rests. <laughs> Think about it. Which people group opposed Jesus the most? The Pharisees, Sadducees, and the religious authorities, right? They're the ones Jesus fought with the most. They are the people that troubled Jesus the most. Most of Jesus' conflict was with the religious leaders of his time. And so in Galatia, the persecution these people were facing was not physical, but it was no less dangerous. It was law-reliant teachers within the church undermining gospel freedom. And it is the same today. John Stott again helps us. He says, The persecution of the true church is not always by the world, who are strangers, but by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. The greatest enemies of evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, but the church, the establishment, the hierarchy. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. So in our passage for today, this is what's happening. The Apostle Paul has masterfully used the story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, um, Isaac, Ishmael to illustrate the difference between living under the law, old covenant, and living in the freedom of grace. He transitions from the historical facts of Isaac and Ishmael's birth to their symbolic meanings. And Paul's ultimate message he wants to convey to all of us, right, is that salvation and a right relationship with God come through faith in Jesus Christ, not by adhering to good works. And so, as we reflect on this profound truth, listen, I invite you to ponder a crucial question. In the context of your faith and daily life, which type of person do you identify with? Some of you are like, what? In the context of your faith and daily life, which type of person do you identify with? Let's consider four distinct kinds of different people described by Tim Keller to help us understand where we might stand. Okay, first of all, you may be a law-obeying, law-relying. If this is you, you are all about obeying the law, and think that's what makes you right with God. 
You might come across as this confident, you know, self-righteous person, but deep down, you're actually insecure. You worry a lot about whether you're good enough. When things don't go your way, you're devastated. You have much in common with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Second, you might be law-disobeying, law-relying kind of person. If this is you, you believe in the law, but you're not that great at following it. You might feel guilty a lot and struggle with your self-esteem, especially around religious matters. You believe in God and his rules, but often feel like you're failing, which keeps you isolated from the church community. Third, you may be law-disobeying, not law-relying. If this is you, you don't bother with God's law at all. You've kind of made up your own rules about life and feel pretty good about how you're doing. Deep down, though, you might sense there's a God you're ignoring. You often seem happier and more relaxed about beliefs, but there's still a kind of pride there, a subtle self-righteousness in your own way of doing things. You are uh, trying to earn your own salvation by feeling superior to others. This is usually a less obvious kind of self-righteousness. And lastly, if you're here, you may be law-obeying, not law-relying. If this is you, by God's grace, you are truly saved. You understand the gospel and you are living out of the freedom of it. You obey the law of God out of grateful joy that comes from the knowledge of your sonship and out of freedom from the fear and selfishness that false idols have generated, you're generally more understanding and confident than the other groups because your confidence comes from your relationship with Jesus, not your ability to stick to rules. And so where are you at? Where are you at? Do you find your confidence before God in adhering to religious rules and practices? If you do, how is it going for you? If you struggle with with guilt and inconsistency in following God's law, I want to encourage you to seek to understand the grace and promise highlighted in Galatians and other books of the Bible. If you've created your own set of moral standards and feel self-assured in them, uh, have you considered the deeper spiritual longing that might be beneath this confidence? And if you are here and by God's grace you live in the freedom of the gospel... I wonder how your understanding of grace shapes the way you interact with others who may be different spiritually. And so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, 
for the last 11, 12 weeks, we've been reminded of the gospel over and over again. In the coming weeks, we're going to transition to Galatians chapter 5 and 6, and we're going to get more practical. But as we transition to the practical, to to how um, this all plays out, I pray and hope and I want to encourage you to never move away from the gospel to do all you can to gaze upon the beauty of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you are here and you are exploring Christianity, I pray and hope that you would explore not a religion, but you would explore a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. If you do, all your problems might not go away, but the reality is you will savor and embrace a Savior who is kind and who will sustain you and who will provide you with true joy, true peace, and true hope. Let's pray. So God, thank you again for this time. Thank you for reminding us over and over again of the gospel. We never, ever grow or get beyond the gospel. We never do. And so God, may we remind ourselves of it daily. May we preach the gospel to ourselves and others. And God, I pray that you would restore the joy of our salvation for sure this week. May you do it in all of us. You do it in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.